we are looking at, uh, what page was that, 12? 12. Yeah, and we'll kind of go back here and review a second. That's uh, chapter 1, verse 21. Let's have a word of prayer, then we'll begin. Father, give us grace again this evening as we look into your word and pray that uh, our hearts will be open to the truth of God's word and the Holy Spirit will do his work to remind us of what you've done for us and therefore our obligations to you as our Savior and Lord. Uh, Bless each person in the class. We pray you'll smooth out the rough places and give us perseverance in our lives as we read about tonight in this book. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me ask you about the last time because I got a little quiz here for you. Remember in chapter 1, verse 15, Paul talked about people who were opposing him, uh, who were preaching the gospel out of envy and rivalry. I say here, true or false, those preachers who opposed Paul in 115 were most likely Judaizers. Remember, this is, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. True or false, they were most likely Judaizers. No, False. Remember we said the Judaizers is a name that's often associated with the book of Galatians because Paul was writing to Gentiles in Galatia, in the Roman province of Galatia, which is like in central Turkey today. And some Jewish people had come in and told those Gentiles that they also had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses if they wanted to be saved. And that's, we think of that as legalism, and we think of these people who did this as the Judaizers. But we said here, those that, that we're talking about here were actually just the brothers of back in verse 14. You remember Paul mentions um, in verse 14, um, and because of my change, most of the brothers and sisters had become confident in the Lord. It's true that some preach Christ out of them, some of these brothers. So these were genuine Christians, we think, who, so it wasn't like Galatia. In Galatia, Galatia, you had false teachers who were non-Christians. And Paul pronounces anathema on them. May they be eternally condemned. But he doesn't say that about these people. He sees these people as just misdirected Christians, as Christians who are acting sinfully. But He doesn't attack them as being non-Christians. Number two, those in Rome who were preaching out of envy and rivalry were clearly unsaved perverters of the Christian truth. I've already answered that, obviously. That's, That's false. They were not unsaved perverters. Number three, the word salvation in 119, Paul says, For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, What has happened to me will turn out for my salvation. I say the word salvation speaks of physical deliverance. False. Now, I I should say that there are people who believe that that is true, that it does speak of physical deliverance. Uh, the, The word salvation can sometimes speak of physical deliverance. I was saved from the flood. You know, we can use that in our life. We say... I was saved from the tornado or something. So saved. So the word saved, even in Greek, K 
can mean physical deliverance. There's a question of whether Paul ever does it. If he ever uses a physical deliverance, this is the one time. There's no other place where anybody thinks he does, and I don't think he does here. Obviously, the NIV doesn't because they say this will turn out to my salvation. They, they're thinking of spiritual salvation here. Um, I'll come back to that in a moment here. Number four, Paul says this imprisonment in Rome has unfortunately been a real setback for the proclamation of the gospel. False. He says, no, it really hasn't been. You might think that, but I've been able to spread the gospel among the Praetorian Guard and you know, so forth like that. I guess I gave away number five here. The palace guard in 113 refers to the Praetorian Guard, the emperor's personal bodyguard, and that's true, wasn't that? That's what we're talking about there. So let's review here for a second to see where we're at here. We're in a section that begins uh, on, uh, on chapter 1, verse 12, which is called Paul's Missionary Report, or I, I title it Paul's Missionary Report in chapter 1, verse 12 through verse 26. So we're in 12 through 26, where Paul is now, after his thanksgiving and prayer, He's giving an account of his present circumstances. He hasn't communicated with these people for some time. So he's telling them, here's what's happened to me. I'm in Rome, and here's what's happening to me, and here's the situation in my... You know, so they know Paul, apparently, was taken under arrest and has been taken to Rome, and they sent this man, Epaphroditus, as we'll learn, to see about Paul and so forth. So, so Paul is writing now in this section to give them a report. Uh, to tell them what his circumstances have been. And that first section, beginning in 12 through 18a, um, 12 through 18a, uh, I titled it Paul's Circumstances. And I said in this section, Paul talks about the progress of the gospel in Rome and so forth. And in verses 12 through 14, he talks about the unhindered progress of the gospel. He says, contrary to what you might think. I mean, I, I you know... I don't want to contradict the Bible here or contradict Apostle Paul, but, you know, it seems like maybe there was a sense in which it would be hindered. If the Apostle Paul was free in Rome, it seemed like he would have more opportunities. But, but he's, he's looking at it in this sense. God is in control. I'm under arrest, and I'm here in Rome. And it really hasn't ultimately hindered because I'm preaching the gospel and other people are preaching, the, proclaiming the gospel. So in that sense, we, you know, I call it here, this, he, that's what he says. It's sort of unhindered. It hasn't really been a problem. But then he says in verses 15 through 18, that we're looking at, looked at last time, I, I entitled this, Blessings Mixed with Adversity, saying that, okay, the gospel's been going forward, and it's not really been hindered, and there's been blessings, but okay, I'll admit, there's been some problems. There's been some, uh, some adversity. There's been some problems. And we know what the problems were. We just talked about it. That there are some people in Rome, some that Paul considers, I guess, genuine believers, who are preaching the gospel, proclaiming Christ, but they're doing it for the wrong reasons. Remember, he says in verse 17, they do it not sincerely hoping to stir up trouble or distress for me. And uh, so Paul, you know, is very honest. He says, yeah, the gospel's gone forward, but verse 18, 
a, a what does it matter Christ is preached, and that's the main thing. Not that I'm being attacked. That's not a that's not a big deal. And then we were looking at the section we were looking at uh, this right now is 18b through 26. Paul's attitude. So Paul gives them this report. He says the gospel's been going forward, but now he says, "I want to." Te- he, he he tells us about his attitude. How, how how do I feel about this? How has all this affected me? And the first thing he said we looked at last time was one eighteen b through twenty, which I titled "Joy in Salvation." That is, Paul could still rejoice in spite of the fact that he's under house arrest. He's under this distress and everything. And he says in verse 18, or verse 19, he says 18b, I'm sorry, I will continue to rejoice for, he says, why can I do that? Verse 19, I know that through your prayers and the provisions of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my salvation. So Paul says, I believe in a sovereign God who's in control of everything. And I believe all these circumstances will ultimately turn out to my salvation. And I said, I thought that was talking about spiritual salvation. We have to remember that when we use the term salvation mostly in our circles, we mean a past event. We say, have you been saved? Yes, I was saved back in 19 so-and-so. So we, always, we tend to use the word salvation as a past event. But that's not how the New Testament uses the term. The New Testament uses the term salvation, the verb saved, in both a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. It uses it, if you look up the word, it uses it past, present, and future. Let me just give you examples of that. We know like Ephesians 2.8. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. Okay, there's the past. We have been saved. That's true. But we all know that we haven't got all of our salvation because we've been regenerated, we've been born again. But there is a present aspect that's going on now. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To us who are being saved. Paul says we are being saved. That's something we never say. We never tell my next door neighbor, you know, I'm being saved. Or we never say, I will be saved. We always say, I am saved. You know, see what I'm saying? But Paul can use it in the present tense, because I am being saved. That's that sanctification part, that Christian maturity. That's part of... So salvation is a big term. It covers past, present, and it speaks of the future. So Paul uses of the present, I am being saved. But most of the time in the New Testament, if you look at all the references, he uses it of the future. Now, as I say, we use it almost always in our contemporary language of the past. Paul, almost always future. So like Romans 5, 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? We shall be saved, Paul says. He didn't say we are saved. We, we shall be saved. There's something future. That's that glorification, saved from God's wrath. He goes right on the next verse, verse 10, Romans 5, 10. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So if you looked in your Bible and you looked up all the, the word saved in the verb, you would actually find there's actually a few more times when Paul uses it in the future than in the past. So that's what we have here when Paul says, 
what has happened to me will turn out for my salvation, my ultimate salvation. We're not finished yet. We say, I have been saved, but not really. We are being saved right now, and we ultimately will be completely saved. So when Paul says, this will turn out to my salvation, Paul can look at his circumstances and the things that's happened in his life, distresses, problems, conflicts, sickness, and he says, God is sovereign, and he is bringing these things into my life for my salvation, for my growth and maturity and all this. God is in control of all this. And so Paul can say, therefore, I can rejoice. I can rejoice in these difficult circumstances because I know, I mean, if there's no God, it's a terrible place to live. I mean, with the misery and suffering. I mean, think about the people who have suffered terrible, terrible things, you know, in Auschwitz and people who are suffering today and all that. If there's no God, what a terrible thing that is, you know. But as a Christian, I mean, I don't know how, you know, how can you lay your head down on your pillow at night and, and just do anything without, you know, unless God is in control of our lives. So he says, I can have this joy in my salvation and I'm trusting that God will be exalted in my life. Now we come to the section where we're at tonight, death is no threat. And Paul says here, I say in this section, Paul makes clear how that salvation is not in any way threatened by the possibility of death. So even distresses don't bother Paul. Opposition doesn't bother Paul. They're not going to affect his ultimate salvation, and even death won't affect. That's all in God's hands. He says in verse 21, the well-known verse we all know, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I say here, back in verse 20, the issues of life and death are clearly subordinated to Christ being glorified in Paul. But in the following verses, death and life are examined as alternatives and life are their benefits for Paul and his readers. So Paul explains here, that word for means he's giving an explanation, how he can have such composure in the face of life or death, because he says, for me to live is Christ, Paul says, and to, God, to die is ultimately gain. So we know that to live describes his present existence here on earth, and he can say, I, I can live through all these difficulties because for me to live is Christ. That's a great verse, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing it's a wonderful aspiration. But I can't really say, I mean, can you honestly say that in your life for me to live as Christ? We, we, we want that, don't we? We want, we want to be able to say that. We want that. But that is a difficult thing to say. That for me, everything in my life is really about Christ, the Christian life, serving Christ. You know, nothing else matters. That's certainly what we strive for. This is a tremendous... Uh, a tremendous uh, challenge to us, isn't it? But if we're honest, we have to admit we can't, you know, we might say that, we might quote it and say, this is my life verse. For me to live as Christ, uh, it's a great life verse, but let's be honest, this is, <laughs> to be able to say this honestly is an amazing thing, isn't it? That, that this is really the Christian life, Christ, the gospel, that's really the most important thing. That's what we hope, that's what we're striving for, isn't it? We're all hope to make that our goal. 
So Paul says, for me to, to live is Christ, and since dying means he would be with Christ, then to die is ultimately gain. Uh, um, you know, that's, again, we might say that, but it's not how we think in this age. You know, we have, we have expressions like life is good, you know. Life is good, isn't it? Isn't life good? I mean, it's pretty good. If you're sick or something like that, it's not so great, you know. But if you're poor, but in America, life's pretty good, you know. And you have expressions. People will say, uh, how you doing? I'm doing good. I'm alive. It's better than the alternative, they say. You know, you know that expression? It's better than the alternative. Maybe you've said it. Maybe we've all said it. You know, I'm, I'm alive and it's better than the alternative. Well, is it really better than the alternative? Yeah, in a certain sense, yeah. But for not for Paul. Paul says the alternative is actually better. Isn't that amazing? He can say... To die is really gain. That's, that's a tough thing. We can say that, but it's hard to mean it, isn't it? Most of us would rather, we don't really ch- cherish the idea of dying right now. You know, we, we hope to go to heaven one day and all that, but to say, to really mean that, that's, that's, that's an amazing testimony, isn't it? Verse 22, he says, and he's talking about, again, death is no threat to his salvation, for I For if I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose, I do not know. So obviously he has doubts here because, remember, Paul's under house arrest. He could be executed. If I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose, I don't know. I say here, Paul should continue to live as a result of a favorable favorable disposition of his case in Rome. This would provide continued opportunity for him to labor fruitfully in the cause of Christ. Cause of Christ. Um, and for Paul, of course, this was not going to be an easy life. His labors in establishing churches had, had you know, as we know, had required physical hardships, for frequent opposition, spiritual anguish, and so forth. But he looked upon this as fruit to be harvested. If, if I go on living, then I'm going to have more spiritual fruit, and so that's, that's a good thing. That's what I live for. Yet he says, yet what shall I choose? I do not know. This phrase, I do not know, means something like, I can't really tell. I'm not sure. What should I choose? As I say here, Paul was so positively committed to the will of God that both life and death held certain attractions. And so he says, if the choice were left to me, uh, if the choice were left to me, I don't know what I would, you know, choose. I don't know which one I would choose to go and be with Christ or to stay here and be of service to Christ. Verse 23, he says, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. I say here, as Paul thought of his prospects, he felt himself in a dilemma, though in this case, either alternative was a good one. So there were these two possibilities, continued life or he could be executed by the Roman governor. And he says, I'm torn. You know, I have this, I don't know which one is best. Now, this is only a hypothetical dilemma in the sense that Paul doesn't really control this. Paul says, I'm torn between the two, but he's not, he's not really the one who's going to decide. He can't decide whether I'm going to live or what I'm going to die. He's just thinking this over in his mind. You know, I could die. 
I, they could set me free and I could live. And, uh, you know, I'm just torn between the two. I don't know which is better. Now, as I say, ultimately, his, choi his choice is simply a matter of yearning one way, but he doesn't have any choice over this. I say here, from the standpoint of what could be an advantage for him, Paul had a desire to leave this life and be with Christ. So death for him would be departure from this present state. It wouldn't be a catastrophe since he would be with Christ, as he says here, I would be with Christ. So this is clear. You know, Paul sees that if he leaves this life, he's going to be with Christ. That's somewhat important. There's another verse, verses over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6, 7, and 8. Remember that King James says something like, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And Paul contemplates the same thing there. And so those verses indicate that one is either in one's body as a Christian or one is with the Lord. There's no intermediate sort of soul sleep. Remember some uh, groups, Seventh-day Adventists and others, have sort of a, you, you kind of just go to sleep and you're, you're sleeping until the resurrection and so forth like that. The Roman Catholics have a purgatory. You don't, nobody goes straight to heaven except a saint maybe or somebody, but, but even the Pope expects to go to purgatory and spend so many years there having his sins cleansed and so forth. He's not going to heaven. But Paul doesn't see that at all. He sees, I'm going to depart, and if I, if I die, I'm going to be with Christ. So this brought him great joy, great relief, and so forth. Verse 24 but it is more necessary for you, I remain in the body. I say here, though Paul had a desire to depart and be with Christ, which was far better for him, he was guided by other than personal desires. So he recognized, you know, another standpoint from which his future could be viewed, and that is his remaining alive would be an advantage for the Philippian believers. They didn't, you know, they didn't have a New Testament like we have. They, <laughs> They have this letter that he's writing to them, but they didn't have all the, the knowledge we have. They were dependent upon people like the Apostle Paul and so forth for teaching. So this would be a tremendous advantage if he were to remain alive. He doesn't tell us how this what this advantage would be, but it's obvious that he could go on and be with them. He could teach them. He could still uh, perform ministry for them and so forth, as he says in verse 25. Well, then he gives a word of reassurance. He says, convinced of this, as I say in the notes there, this refers back to what is preceded in verse 24. Paul was convinced of this, that to remain in the body was more necessary for the Philippians. Convinced of this, that it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body, I know that I will remain and I will continue with you all, with all of you, for your progress and joy in the faith. So as I say, when he says this, convinced of this, it's more necessary for me, Paul says that I'm confident, he says, that I will remain, in fact, remain. Now that seems a little strange <laughs> in light of what we've just read. He just, we know that he's under house arrest he uh, he uh, he is there in Rome. He's waiting for his appeal before Caesar, and uh, he has said previously 
Um, remember in verse uh, 22, he said, uh, If I am to go on living in this body, if I am to go on living, yet what shall I choose? I don't know. He, you know, that's what we, you know, think of Paul as saying, uh, I don't know. I don't know whether I'm going to be set free or not. But then all of a sudden he says, uh, I know I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your, for your progress and joy and faith. This creates a little bit of a dilemma. What, what is the reason for this confidence? Uh, was it the result of some sort of favorable development in his legal proceedings? Did he suddenly find out that, guess what, we've just heard that uh, they're going to let you go? Or did he get some special revelation from God all of a sudden uh, that he was going to be let go and so forth? Um, that all seems difficult in light of just, you know, this is only a two seconds away <laughs> that he said this. He just, just a few seconds ago he said, I don't know if I'm going to continue with you or not. And then he suddenly seems to change his mind here and say, uh, you know, there, there's no hint here that he's heard news. There's no hint that, he, that God has just revealed something to him all of a sudden here. We're just talking about a couple of verses, and all of a sudden he says no here. What I say here is the word no cannot be pressed to mean infallible knowledge, and it's doubtful whether Paul would have spoken as he had in 120 through 24 if he knew by prophetic inspiration that he would be set free. That is, if he already knew he was going to be set free, then why would he talk like he did in 20 through 24, where he seemed to say, I don't know if I'm going to be free or not. He's very doubtful. He doesn't know. I think what, what we have here, most think, is in verse 25, Paul is now giving them his personal conviction based upon what seemed probable in light of other factors. That is, Paul, he says, I'm convinced that it's better if I remain, you bo- remain in the body. And I, and I know, I feel confident that I will remain. And then I will continue with all of you. So I'm not sure we can press that to mean infallible knowledge. But it's a strong conviction. That Paul realized that the Philippians needed his apostolic ministry. And that far outweighed his desire to be with Christ immediately. Paul probably felt that the case against him wasn't very strong anyway. And in fact, we we sort of know the case wasn't strong. We didn't read this, but you remember what I said. Paul was arrested. Paul was arrested in, um, in, um, in Jerusalem. And then because they thought the, the, the commander there thought that of the garrison, thought that Paul might be killed, he had him transported to the governor in Caesarea, uh, which was the capital of the Roman province of Judea. So he's taken up there, and he goes before the governor Felix first, and Felix tries to get a bribe out of Paul, and Paul remains in jail there in Caesarea for two years. And then in Acts chapter 26... He goes before a new governor who comes there to the province, a man by the name of Festus. And if you remember the, the story there in Acts 26, uh, Festus is visited by another ruler in the area, a man by the name of Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II. He's the, um, 
he is the great-grandson of Herod the Great, Herod Agrippa II. And he had a little kingdom uh, just north there of Galilee that he was given and so forth. So he comes there with his sister Bernice, and he's visiting the new Roman governor who's come, Festus, who's come. And remember, they bring Paul in there, and they talk to him and so forth. And at the end of it, Agrippa hears his story. He hears all this evidence, his testimony, and he hears Paul's story. You remember what he says? He says, you know, this man could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. <laughs> and we're, it's always an amazing statement, you know. This man could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. In other words, if I had my judgment, I'd just let this guy go because I don't really see he's done anything worthy of death or anything. But Paul has appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar, he's got to, you know, he's, that's been, the legal proceedings have started apparently, and so he's going to be sent. So my point in all that is to say it appears you know, Paul probably thought the case uh, against him was not strong. Now, what we know is, you remember the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, takes us through to that Roman imprisonment, and it says Paul was under his own, uh, in his own rented house under arrest there for two years, and the book of Acts ends right there. Well, what happened then? We, we don't know. But most people think that Paul did get free. Philippians is written toward the end of that two-year imprisonment. And most people think Paul did get free, and he had another missionary journey. And the reason we think that is because church history, the church, early church fathers said this is what happened. They're not infallible. They might be wrong. But if you look at the pastoral epistles, you know, written, so Paul's last epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, there's a lot of references in there to Paul's travels that don't coincide with the book of Acts. I'm not going to take time to go into all that tonight, but if you, if you take a look at some of those things he mentions, they just don't fit the book of Acts at all. It seems clear Paul had another time after that. So what most people think is uh, Paul wrote, we, we often say, remember 2 Timothy, Paul talks about being in prison. We th- 2 Timothy seems to describe his second Roman imprisonment. You'll hear people talk about Paul being in the maritime prison in, in Rome, and if you go to Rome ever, they'll take you to a prison place where they think Paul was in prison. That's probably his second Roman imprisonment. So what happens here is we believe Paul was let go, and he did revisit the Philippians again. It's very probable. But then he was rearrested, and he was taken a prisoner in Rome. He was put into a prison actual cell there, and according to historical data, we, it's not in the Bible, he was executed. He was, his head was cut off at Rome. And that seems to be true, but we don't have confirmation in the Bible. So what I'm saying about all that is to say, I think Paul is expressing a certain confidence he's going to get out of this. He seems fairly confident. Uh, he doesn't know for sure, but he seems like it. And everything suggests that Paul actually did that. I mentioned that last section there. Paul's continued ministry among the Philippians would be aimed at advancing their spiritual growth and deepening their joy in Christ. It's for your progress and joy and faith. So Paul is hoping that he can continue on. He can help the Philippians in their own spiritual growth. Verse 26, So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. In verse 25, Paul said that the purpose of his remaining with the Philippians was for their progress and joy and faith. The ultimate purpose, so that, the word so that indicate ultimate purpose here, is that their boasting 
in Christ is that they're, is they're boasting in Christ. And, and he says, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. Now, this is a strange phrase, boasting in Christ, isn't it? You're boasting in Christ. This is a word that it, it doesn't quite exactly fit the word boast in English. So there's de- debate about how to translate this. Because we think of boasting as a bad thing. Boasting is bad. You're not supposed to boast and so forth. Uh, the older NIV translates this as, um, uh, I think it translates your proud confidence. The New American Standard translates this, your proud confidence. So that's not as bad as boasting, you know, your proud confidence. The ESV says, so that you may glory in Christ. And that's sort of the idea. Paul is saying, uh, I want to, my ultimate purpose is that so I can be with you, help you in your spiritual growth, so that you can have confidence, so you can boast in Christ. So that's the only kind of boasting that's allowed, if there is a thing that's boasting, is, is saying, I'm a Christian, you know. I trust Christ. Uh, I'm committed to Christ. That's sort of a boast. That's a confidence, that kind of thing. And that's what, that's what the idea here is. There is a proper kind of boasting or being proud. Again, the word proud has kind of a negative connotation. But there is, there is pride or boasting or confidence in being in Christ Jesus. And he's saying... The result of all this, that, you're, you, that this confidence you have will abound. It will increase. You'll have greater confidence in Christ, greater, greater, greater security. And this would be through Paul's ministry, and that would be a great thing. So Paul is, is, is uh, happy to stay with them and happy to be with them. All right, let's look at the next section here. We have finished now Paul's missionary report. We had the thanksgiving and prayer, the introduction of the epistle. And uh, then we had Paul's missionary report because he wanted to tell them, you know, what's happened to him in Rome, how he's been, so forth. He's kind of relayed all that data, got him up to speed on that. And now uh, we enter sort of the main section of Philippians here. I've got it entitled here, A Call to Sanctification. Remember what sanctification is. Sanctification is a big term. Uh, It has the idea of to make holy, to become holy, Christ-like. So sanctification is spiritual maturity, Christ-likeness. That's that present. Paul says, you are being saved in 1 Corinthians 1. So we are being saved. That part of salvation is sanctification. And so now he's calling on them. He's encouraging them to continue in their spiritual growth and their sanctification. So I say here, with 127, we have now reached what must be considered the central section of Philippians. Here we have Paul's exhortation, his encouragement to holy conduct. That's what sanctification is, increasing in holy conduct. Through chapter 2, verse 18, followed by two examples in 2, 19 through 30. So, from here through 2.18, Paul is going to exhort them and encourage them to holy living, to holy conduct. And then in verses 19 through 30, the last part of this, he's going to give two examples that he likes. He's going to give the example of Timothy 
and the example of their own fellow Philippian, a man by the name of Epaphroditus. They're gonna, he's going to give them as examples of holy conduct, of uh, living the right kind of Christian life. So we're looking, first of all, at we're dividing this into 127 through chapter 2, verse 18. Now we want to subdivide this. We can divide 127 through 218 into three subsections, three divisions. First, the duties of Christian citizenship, 127 through 24. Second, a description of Christ's conduct as the model of Christian humility. That's that famous section in 2, 5 through 11 where Christ, you know, is humble. He, he dies a death on the cross, sometimes called the kenosis. And then three, a more general conclusion, concluding exhortation to Christian obedience. Okay. So all this is a call to spiritual maturity, to sanctification. And it begins here in 127 through 2.4 with the duties of, a Christ, of Christian citizenship. Paul uh, looks upon us as citizens of heaven. Remember in chapter 3 of Philippians, he's going to use that terminology citizen and says, our citizenship is in heaven. Remember that? Our citizenship is in heaven. So it's like we are citizens of heaven. That's really our home. And Paul is using these terms on purpose. He uses the the noun there in chapter 3, verse 20, of citizenship. And right here in verse 27, he uses the verb form. It's translated in the NIV, whatever happens, conduct yourselves. This is a word which means conduct yourself as a citizen. Remember we talked about Philippians, uh, Philippi being a Roman colony, remember? So that the people, most of the citizens who lived there were Roman citizens. This is unusual, you know. If you went to Jerusalem in Paul's day, you couldn't hardly find a Roman citizen anywhere. I mean, you just, you just couldn't find one. Maybe a Roman soldier, yeah. But if you just went house to house, you didn't find any Roman citizens. There weren't any Roman citizens. These people were people from Palestine. They weren't Roman citizens. Roman citizenship was something that was prized. You remember even Paul, when he was arrested in the, in the uh, temple there, and they're getting ready to put the lash on him, he says, can you do this to a Roman citizen? And the soldier says, you're a Roman citizen? You're a Jew? You're, you're telling me you're a Roman citizen? He says, yeah. That's a great surprise. So Roman citizenship was something that, yeah, it was common in Italy, but outside of Italy, it was very uncommon. It was just uncommon. But remember, Rome established these little colonies, these little places where retired soldiers uh, where when they retired, they went and so forth. And so the people who, who were there, most of the people were Roman citizens. Not everybody. There were Jews there. There were Greeks there. Not everybody. And so, you know, even when we think about Paul's establishing the church, this thing about Roman citizenship comes up. You remember the story in Acts chapter 16 where Paul establishes the church at Philippi. He gets the Macedonian call we talked about. He goes over there and he and the first person he uh, meets is Lydia, you know, down by the water. Well, she wasn't a Roman citizen, probably. It's possible, but it's probably not. And then he casts the demon out of that woman, you know, the demon-possessed woman. And then he gets in trouble. And they don't like it because this is a woman who made them money by telling fortunes and other things like this, you know. And let me just read a section here what happened to Paul. 
Remember, uh, uh, she she made a lot of money. They they talk, they say here, she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This is Acts sixteen verse sixteen. But then in verse 19 it says, When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into uproar, advocating customs unlawful for us as Romans to accept our pride. We're Romans. We're Roman citizens. We're proud of that. So I'm saying all that to say Paul is using that in this epistle. So these two uh, references to Roman citizenship aren't just accidental. You know, Paul is, because he knows they're Roman citizens, he's going to use that, th- that, that uh, word here to describe the Christian life. Well, let's look at that. So I say the duties of Christian citizenship, 127 through 24. The heading from this section comes from the main verb of 127, conduct yourselves. And I got in parentheses, as a good citizen should. This is not the normal word for Paul. You know, uh, we're familiar in our Bibles, like, like in the King James, where we often have the word walk, your Christian walk. And NIV will translate that, your Christian life, or live this way, walk this way, you know. This is not the normal word that Paul uses to live a Christian life. He's particularly chosen the word for citizenship, for a Roman citizen, how a Roman citizens should conduct their lives, because he's impressing upon these people. So he's taking that from their own culture and using that in a Christian manner. So I say here, Paul is probably appealing to their sense of civic duty. You know the pride and responsibility attached to living in a Roman colony. It's a very great responsibility. It's a source of pride. Remember that you have a higher allegiance, a calling to faithful conduct. And as remember we said in chapter 3, our citizenship is really in heaven. So Paul says, we're going to look at the duties of Christian citizenship. You're a citizen of heaven, and therefore that requires certain responsibilities, just like a Roman citizen had certain responsibilities to conduct themselves in a certain way. And so he's appealing to that, appealing to their Christian citizenship here. And the first duty that he he urges upon them, is the need for perseverance. Remember, we've talked about perseverance here in the past a few couple times. Perseverance means continuation in something, to continue. Continue, in this case, continue in the Christian faith. Continue in good works. So God prizes that. God wants to see us not just make a good beginning, but continue. And so Paul is urging on many of his churches, this idea of perseverance. Notice what he says in verse 27. Whatever happens, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. I say here, Paul had assured the Philippians that everything would work out well, remember 24 through 26, but there was one thing that concerned him. The Philippians were in danger of overlooking their duty, Christian duty to maintain unity. Remember I said if there's one problem in the church at Philippi, it's probably something to do with unity. And when we get to chapter 4, we see Judea 
and syndicate, they're fighting each other and so forth. That's certainly a problem of unity there. So that's the one thing. So he touches on when he now he's going to get to the exhortation. I'm going to exhort you about your Christian life. And the first thing, the most important thing he says, is conduct yourselves like a person who is a Christian should conduct themselves, worthy of the gospel. Stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. As I say here, the main verb, conduct yourself, is different from Paul's customary term where he describes Christian conduct or behavior. Paul uses the noun form of this verb in 320. Remember, our citizenship is in heaven, where it's translated citizenship. Thus, the verb suggests the idea of conduct yourselves as a good citizens in a state. So we're part of the ultimate kingdom of God. We're in a different uh, state in a sense. Our, our main allegiance, we have allegiance to the United States and here on earth and all that, but our main allegiance is to heaven, to Christ, and so forth. So the point is, this would really sink in, I think, to the, to the Romans. They were very proud of their citizenship. They knew they were members of the citizens of a Roman colony. And so they knew they had responsibilities as Romans to conduct themselves in a certain way. The Romans outwardly projected a very high morality. They didn't, they didn't in secret, but outwardly they projected a very high morality. And the Romans always criticized other cultures because of their lack of sort of outward morality, you know. And, and they were very proud of this. You know, even the Emperor Augustus, I'm just thinking about him for a second, the Emperor Augustus, who was the emperor when Christ was born, he actually banned his own daughter because of her sexual promiscuity. He actually kicked her out of Rome, you know. So he didn't overlook that. He, he got rid of her just because she was not outwardly conforming to how Roman morally should, should act. So they were very proud of this. And so Paul picks up that, that idea from their background and urges them to conduct themselves as citizens of heaven. This is a permanent obligation. We have an obligation, you and I, to conduct ourselves as citizens of heaven. I say here, as citizens of the, of the spiritual realm, the Philippians should stand firm in one spirit, the Holy Spirit. And of course, true unity must be produced by the Holy Spirit. And so that's what happens when we become Christians we are indwelt by the Spirit, we're regenerated by the Spirit, and there is a unity of Spirit that's created. Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Make every effort to keep the unity that the Spirit creates. And that's what he's saying here. And so he's saying in this church there is a unity that's been created by the Spirit and you're disrupting that, obviously. And so Paul is saying whether he would be released and thus enabled to visit them in person or whether he would remain away and learn of their progress through reports of others, his exhortation was the same. They've got to conduct themselves in a way that's appropriate for the gospel of Christ. I say this exhortation of unified thought and action was in view in view of the goal of striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. The faith of the gospel means the truth of the gospel. Here it is, the body of truth that's contained in Scripture. And Paul wants them to strive together to maintain a unified a spirit and conduct and presence and so forth so that they can be, you know, a great testimony to those 
uh, outside to adversaries. So we understand that. I mean, a, a church like this, it's important that, you know, the church maintains as much unity as possible so that, you know, you can stand together and be a tremendous witness to those people around. You can just imagine what, <laughs> what unbelievers think when churches are having internal battles and splits and, you know, things are going on that we read about. That, that's just a terrible testimony for the cause of Christ. So I say here um, they're to strive for this one, for the faith of the gospel, for this truth, the gospel message. Um, you know, implying that, you know, ad- adversaries have to be faced. And we see that in verse 28. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved in that by God. I say, Paul doesn't want the Philippians intimidated to be intimidated in any respect by their opponents. So Paul, uh, the, the Philippians are facing opponents here. And uh, he says, I don't want you to be frightened because they oppose you. Um, the, the noble character of their cause, they're, 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 they're for Christ, they're with Christ, that Christ is on their side, on their side should cause them to avoid the terror that can obviously come when you face opponents, when you face opposition. Who are these opponents here, it says? Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Uh, most likely, you know, if we look at verse 30, Paul will say, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I, I had and now hear that I still have. So just a couple of verses later, Paul will say, since you, are, since you, right now, are going through the same struggle you saw I had, probably you saw I had when I was at Philippi, and what kind of struggle did Paul have at Philippi? He had a struggle with the governmental officials, Disney, didn't he? And he says, and now hear that I still have. What kind of struggles Paul got? He's got a struggle with the governmental officials. And so most likely here when Paul says, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So Paul says, don't be fearful of these governmental officials. So apparently the Philippians, you know, Paul left. If you remember the story in Acts chapter 16, Paul was put in prison. I remember the earthquake came and the the prison was open. And then um, the city officials came and said, well, they just put him in jail overnight and said, get out of town and leave. And Paul says, well, listen, I'm a Roman citizen, and you locked me up unlawfully. And they got terrified about that. They were upset about that. And, but Paul did ultimately leave. And Paul says, I don't want you to be... So apparently they are, they're, maybe, they're apparently still facing opposition at Philippi. They're still anti-Christian forces at work at Philippi. And Paul has heard about this, and that's why he's saying... I don't want you to be frightened by those who oppose you. So Paul wants them to continue to contend for the faith, but not let this opposition you know, become so intimidating. They have to have this mindset that, mindset that Paul has, to live as Christ, to die as gain. That's how to overcome that. It's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy to do that, to live as Christ, to die as gain. If, if, we, could get, you know, if we could really believe that, and adopt that, then we wouldn't be scared about opposition. Um, 
I say here, failure of the church to be intimidated by the enemies was a token of the ultimate failure of the enemies of God. The, the adversaries may not recognize this, but Paul is saying this is like an omen. This is a sign. The fact that you're not frightened, you're not intimidated, is ultimately a sign to them that they will be destroyed. They may not realize that, but it's ultimately a sign the church will prevail and that you will be saved in that by God. This is a sign. This is an omen. The fact that you're not frightened is a sign, an omen, that ultimately um, these enemies will be destroyed, ultimately sometime, and that you ultimately will be saved. I mean, this may not mean much to us right now because we've lived in a nation where we've had religious freedom and, you know, we haven't had much opposition. We may get the zoning board may not like our plans for our church or something, you know, and that's about the most opposition we get. But, you know, it could be we're coming in a day. We just don't know, you know. We just don't know. The church is becoming so counterculture. I mean, what we believe is so contrary to culture. Uh, I was just reading this uh, interview with Justice Scalia, you know, of the Supreme Court. He's a pretty orthodox Roman Catholic guy, you know. And so he's in this interview, he's, uh, it's on the web, you can find it, it's very interesting. But he's talking to this reporter, and this reporter is asking him and, about, you know, if it's religious things, and, and he, he says, I believe in the devil. And this, this person says, you believe in the devil? I mean, what sane person believes in the devil? She can't believe, you know. And he talks about how homosexuality is wrong, and, 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 and this person cannot believe that somebody in 2013 believes. So what I'm saying is, here's what the world believes over here, and here's what a guy like Scalia, which is the biblical truth over here. It's just so in opposition. This person who interviews him is just amazed. How can, how can a person who sits on the Supreme Court believe in the devil, <laughs> for one thing, and how could they possibly believe in 2013 that homosexuality is wrong? This is, this is just, this guy's loopy. He is crazy. And so I'm just saying that, you know, when I, when I was born and when I grew up, uh, you know, homosexuality was seen as a perversion. It was seen as just wrong. There was, there was no, you know, it, wasn't, it was just accepted in the culture. Well, now, you know, we're going to face some real opposition on this. You know, we may face some real persecution in the future if, if we live long enough here because if we don't accept what the state says about it. So I'm just saying... We've been blessed. We've been fortunate in our country, haven't we? We haven't faced real opposition, real distress or persecution. We haven't had to say, for me to live as Christ and die as gain and really mean it. <laughs> but there may come a day here, you know, for some, some who live long enough that this will be the truth. Well, Paul talks then about another quality that's needed. Perseverance is needed. We've got, person, we've got to continue in the faith. That's always necessary. That's, that's the great sign of a true Christian. Perseverance really marks out a Christian. A person who's not going to be fearful, not going to be frightened, is going to be able to stand for the truth. That's not easy, but that's something that is a mark of a real Christian. Paul says a second thing that the Philippians need to be reminded of is suffering. He says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but to suffer for him. 
As I say here, verses 29 and 30 offer a theological explanation for the Philippians' suffering. Now they, so Paul knows their suffering. They, he knows there are opponents. As we said in verse 20, verse 30, remember he says, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I have. So they are facing some opposition. They're facing something. I don't know. Is it loss of land? Loss of freedom? Are they, you know, what's happening in Philippi? Paul doesn't tell us. But Paul is offering here an explanation for their suffering. As I say, verse 29 views their present suffering in terms of their relationship to Christ, and verse 30 in terms of a relationship to Paul. He starts off here in verse 29, 4, it has been granted. Paul is giving the reason. 4 often indicates the reason. He's giving the reason or explanation for this surprising statement in verse 28, particularly this clause at the end, and that from God. Um, so let me, let me try to make the connection here between verse 28 and verse 29. Paul says in verse 20, he talks about these conflicts that they're exp- experiencing. He says, the conflicts that you're experiencing, this opposition you're experiencing, maybe from the governmental authorities, this may appear frightening, and it would threaten to discourage you. It would discourage anybody, you know. If the government comes in here tomorrow and says, we're closing this place down, that's, that's discouraging. That's threatening. Paul says, these, these, these conflicts that you're experiencing, this opposition, um, you can't allow that to discourage you. Perhaps you're... In, perhaps you're you're, you're, uh, you're tempted to interpret this opposition from the government as a bad omen, as a bad sign, that somehow God is displeased with you. But Paul says, this is not a sign that God is displeased with you at all. This is a sign, basically, of your salvation. This kind of opposition and suffering is just part of the Christian life. So, you might be tempted to look at this. We're always tempted. When we get opposition, when we get sickness, when we get distress, we get setback, we often look at this, well, something's wrong with my Christian life. Something's gone haywire here, you know. If everything is going well, if I've got money, if I've got health, if family's good, then God loves me and everything's great. But if I get a little problem, you know, <laughs> the temptation is to say something is wrong here that God is displeased or something. But Paul says that is exactly wrong. What you have to interpret this is evidence that God's design is to save you, but that you will be saved. Because, he says, this suffering and this persecution and this distress is just a natural part of God's saving experience. And he explains that right here. For it has been granted on your behalf, not only to believe in him, I love that part, but it's been granted that we have to suffer for him. I didn't realize that was coming, you know. I didn't realize that was part of the bargain when I trusted Christ. You know, I didn't, nobody told me that, you know, when I went forward and I said a prayer and no one said, now listen, <laughs> you've been given the right to suffer for Christ, you know. So Paul says, you've got to look at these things in your life, Philippians, in the right way. This is part of God's gift to you. He's given you this gift of suffering. 
That seems rather strange, but that's what Paul says here. I see our time is up here, so why don't we stop here for tonight, and we'll kind of come back and pick this up and then move forward right here at this point, okay?